Well, there is a lot of things to enjoy about this time of the year, aren't there? In fact, someone might even say it's the most wonderful time of the year. But what I love most about this time of the year is it's an opportunity to take a long look at the birth of Jesus Christ. As you know, we normally uh, continue our exposition, whatever book we're in, uh, and really just have a Christmas message the Sunday before Christmas. Uh, But this year, we're going to take a little break from Philippians and do a three-part series uh, called Jesus, the Son of David. And uh, and this message will be called today, um, The Promised King. Next week, we'll look at Jeremiah 33, at The Coming King, and then Christmas Day from Luke 1, the newborn king. So if you turn with your Bible with me, not to 2 Samuel 7, but to Luke chapter 1 to start with. We'll start here just to set up the series and then we'll make our way back to 2 Samuel 7. As New Testament believers, where the vast majority of us are Gentiles and not Jews, Uh, We tend to look at Christ primarily through the lens of his perfect life, his substitutionary death on the cross, and his glorious resurrection. And so when we celebrate the birth of Christ, it's celebrating it in the shadow of the cross. Meaning we, we celebrate the birth of Christ who ultimately gave his life for us. Uh, You remember in Matthew 1 that the angel told Joseph, Mary will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So for us to celebrate Christ as the one who gave his life for our sin, we are doing what we ought to be doing. Uh, so that is a good thing. But what Joseph, or excuse me, what the angel told Joseph is not what the angel told Mary. He didn't say anything to her about Jesus. Uh, saving his people from their sin. In fact, when the angel talked to Mary, he gave her the bigger picture of who this baby was that was going to be conceived in her. And so my hope in this series is to use the announcement of, uh, of the angel to Mary to expand our perspective of who Jesus is and deepen our understanding so that we can rise higher in worship of Jesus who is the son of David. Now, with with that in mind, follow along as I read the account of Gabriel's announcement to Mary in verses 26 to 38, just to set up the text that we're going to in 2 Samuel. It says this in Luke 1, verse 26. Now, the sixth month, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And in coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth, who has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is going to be our text for Christmas Day, so I won't spend any time on it this morning, except to make one observation. If you look at your Bible, verses 30 to 33 contain the message that the angel delivered to Mary. 
This is the announcement. Knowing what you know about the life and ministry of Jesus that's detailed in the gospel accounts, notice that everything the angel said to Mary about what Jesus would do, he did not do in his lifetime. The reason is because unlike with Joseph, Gabriel's message to Mary was not about what this child would do between his birth and his death. Rather, it was about who this child was. And that is that he is the promised son of David. What's fascinating about this account, as we'll see, is that with the exception of the words, do not be afraid, Mary, everything else the angel said finds a direct connection with what the Lord, through the prophet Nathan, told to David in 2 Samuel 7, 1,000 years earlier. So let's turn back to 2 Samuel 7 as we begin this message called The Promised King. 2 Samuel chapter 7, where we had our scripture reading. While you're turning there, let me set the context for for this. Do you know why Israel had a king? Why a king ruled over the nation? Do you know why that's the case? The reason is because even though Israel did not have a king for the first 500 years or so of their existence as a nation, uh, they rejected God as their king. They didn't have a human king, but they did have a king, and he was God. But Israel said, we don't want God as our king. In fact, we read about Israel's transition from a theocracy to a monarchy in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, And when the people asked for a king because they wanted to be like all the other nations, the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me from being king over them. That, That is an amazing statement. The nation of Israel looks at the Lord who has rescued them from Egypt, provided for them, protected them, cared for them, gave them a land, shepherded them, shepherded them through prophets and judges over the centuries. And they say, we think we would be better off if we had a human king like the nations around us. Now that's not the amazing part. That's expected given the rebellious human heart that we all have. What is really amazing is that God did not wipe them off the face of the earth. But instead, he gave them what they asked for. That is grace, my friends. Well, Scripture doesn't explicitly tell us uh, why the Lord chose Saul to be the first king of Israel, but by emphasizing his physical features— that he was the tallest and the most handsome man in Israel, the clear implication is that the Lord wanted Israel to see what happens when you choose a king based on external appearances. Saul's reign started out well enough, but eventually his defective character shined through and he died a disgrace. When the prophet Samuel went to the house of Jesse as the Lord directed him to anoint the next king, Samuel thought, he could identify the next king based on his appearance. He saw David's oldest brother and he said, surely this is the next king. But the Lord said, no, 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 Samuel. Man looks on the outward appearance, but I'm looking for the heart. So David, the man after God's own heart, is anointed the second king of Israel. And after he becomes king, after the death of Saul, the Lord blesses David in all of his endeavors by helping him beat back Israel's enemies and securing the borders of Israel that they had lost over the last 400 years. Now that brings us to our text. As we read earlier at the beginning of chapter 7, uh, the context of these promises that God makes in verses 8 to 16 are the context of rest that the Lord has given on all sides from their enemies. This means that David has been a king for a number of years. We don't know exactly how many, but he's been a king. And by this point, he has moved the capital from Hebron 
to Jerusalem, which he had conquered. He's built a large house for himself, and he's restored and secured Israel's borders. Uh, Up to this point in the text, David has been a man of war. It was said during the reign of Saul that Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Well, now, or by now, David has probably killed hundreds of thousands. But at this moment, in chapter 7, it was a time of relative peace, which freed up David's mind to consider how else he could occupy his time. And so as David looks around, he realizes, I'm dwelling in a big, beautiful cedar home. And the Lord of the universe is living in a tent. And it may well be, we don't know for sure, but it may well be that there was the very same tent built by Moses and the Israelites 500 years ago. So David gets the idea to build a home, to build the Lord, a permanent home that would, in David's mind, reflect God's majestic glory much better than that raggedy old tent. And so the Lord responds in verse 7 by saying, Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commended to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God is basically saying, hey, I've never asked for this, David. You don't, you don't need to do this. If I, if I wanted this, I would have told you. But there is another reason that David wasn't allowed to build the temple for the Lord. Uh, years later, when David was preparing Solomon to take over the kingdom and build the temple, David said this to them. This is 1 Chronicles 22. My son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house for my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. So David's hands are stained with blood, and so it would not be right for him who has taken so much life to build a house, a temple for the giver of life. But the heart of David here is honorable. His unprompted desire to to build a house for the Lord demonstrates that he is indeed a man after God's own heart. He desires to see God worshipped and served, and so his desire is good and right and noble. And so the Lord honors David's heart by making this covenant with him. In verses 8 to 16, the Lord establishes a unilateral eternal covenant with David. This covenant has elements that are to be fulfilled in his lifetime, elements that will be fulfilled in the near future, and then elements to be fulfilled in the ages to come. The Davidic covenant, as it's called, brings into focus how the Lord will ultimately fulfill his promises uh, of all the previous covenants with mankind. And just to do a quick review of that, the covenants in Scripture reveal God's redemptive purposes and plans throughout time. It begins with that first redemptive promise, which isn't technically a covenant, but the first redemptive promise that God made to mankind is in Genesis 3.15. Remember, Remember when the Lord says that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The second covenant the Lord made was with Noah. After the flood, never again would the Lord... Uh, destroy the world with water, even though man was desperately wicked. The third covenant the Lord made was with Abraham, wherein he promised to make Abram a great nation that would be a blessing to the whole world. The fourth covenant was the Mosaic covenant, where God promised to be Israel's God and that they would be his people. The fifth and least known covenant is what's called the priestly covenant made in Numbers 25 with the zealous priest Phineas. And the Lord promised Phineas that he would have a perpetual priesthood uh, forever. And that brings us to the sixth covenant, which is made here with David. And by the way, the seventh and the final covenant that the Lord makes with mankind is what's called the new covenant. In Ezekiel 36, the Lord makes this covenant And it's inaugurated at the cross. And the most significant elements of the new covenant 
apply to all people who submit themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a covenant of redemption and salvation along with restoration of the people of Israel. These covenants that the Lord has made are not isolated, unrelated promises by God to his people. Rather, they are more layered on top of each other, each bringing more and more clarity to God's redemptive plan. So the the covenants don't cancel out each other, nor do they get so mixed together that they're unrecognizable, nor do they redefine terms so as to nullify previous promises. Each covenant that God makes with this people is a distinct promise made by God, and each is and will be fulfilled by God as he intended them. Now, you need to know that just to understand the context of this promise that the Lord makes to David. And so, with all of that as background, let's walk through the promises that the Lord made. These are the seven aspects. There are seven aspects to this covenant. Seven specific promises that the Lord made to David. And there are these. I'll give them to you real quick, and then we'll walk through them uh, as well. The first promise the Lord made is that the Lord would make David's name great. The second promise is that the Lord will settle the people in the land and give them rest from their enemies. The third promise is that the Lord will make a dynasty for David. The fourth promise is that David's son will sit on his throne. The fifth, David's son will build a house for the Lord's name. The sixth, the Lord will be his father. And the seventh, David's house, his kingdom, and his throne will last forever, will be established forever. Let's read again verses 8 to 16, and then we'll walk through them. The Lord says this, 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with a rod of men and with the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Let's begin with the first promise that the Lord makes to David. That is that the Lord will make David's name great. You can look at verse 9 where he says, I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. One would think that by this point, David's name is already great. By this point, David had far exceeded the successes that he had during the reign of Saul, and he was renowned to his friends and his foes alike. David used to be a shepherd boy, as he said in verse Eight, that the Lord took him from being a shepherd. He was part of a typical family, not any particular royal line. There was none in Israel anyway. As he grew, he fought alongside his fellow Israelites against Israel's enemies without any notoriety. Until David killed Goliath, he was not famous by any stretch of the term. But now, David was a warrior king. He was trusted by his nation and hated and feared by his enemies. So how much greater could his name get? Notice how at the end of verse 9 it says, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Though it's written there with a present tense verb, who are on the earth, 
There's actually no Hebrew verb there. And so the ESV, which many of you have, translates it well. It says, and I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. Like the name of the great ones of the earth. Excuse me. So this could include men who not only are on the earth now, but perhaps were on the earth in the past and are no longer. Men, for example, like Abraham or Noah or Job or Moses. From our vantage point, 3,000 years later, we can see how God fulfilled this promise. In fact, if you look at the uh, amount of attention that Scripture gives to David, apart from Jesus, no other person in Scripture has multiple books that are focused on their life other than David. In fact, David's name, if you just do a simple word search, appears more or as many times in Scripture as Abraham and Moses combined. Now, more meaningfully, David is the king of Israel, and every subsequent king that came from him is evaluated based on how they measured up or fell short of David. Of some kings, it was said, he did right in the eyes of the Lord like David. Of other kings, it was said, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David had done. So David's greatness can be measured by the attention Scripture gives to him, by the fact that he is the measure and the standard by which all other kings are measured. And third, we could say that David's greatness, his name has become great in that God promised and fulfilled that the Messiah would be identified as David's son. Those might seem silly in some ways, but it really isn't. David never is referred to as the ancestor of the Messiah. Instead, the Messiah is always referred to as David's son. Now, that doesn't mean David is greater than the Messiah, but it does mean that David is the reference point in referring to the Messiah, not the other way around. So the Lord promised that he would make David's name great, famous, if you will, that everyone would know who David was, and that's exactly what he did. The second promise he makes is that the Lord would settle Israel in the land and give them rest from their enemies. Look at verses 10 and 11. I will appoint also a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even as from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. This promise might seem a little odd by this point because Israel has actually been in their land for about 500 years. Remember what it said in verse 1 that the Lord had given him rest on all sides. So it's like, well, what are you going to do, Lord, that you haven't already done? Well, the truth is, up to this point in Israel's history, they had never really been settled for any length of time. Initially, when Israel conquered the promised land, there were still portions of the land that they didn't touch and that where Canaanites still lived. And then in the centuries after Joshua, Israel went through cycles of disobedience and rebellion where the Lord gave them over to their enemies who oppressed them and who took over them uh, only to, for Israel to regain control when they turned back to the Lord. It really wasn't until this moment in David's life that Israel as a nation had rest, but it was still so fresh that undoubtedly they still felt on edge. So the Lord's promise implies that their current state of rest will last. And indeed, it did last even beyond Solomon's lifetime. But the Lord also makes this promise, not only in light of the current rest that they have, but in light of his knowledge that things will not always be as they are today. God knows that the time will come when, uh, due to their disobedience, the nation of Israel will be no more, and the people will be exiled, and foreigners will rule over the land. That will happen. And so this promise looks to the future day when the current rest doesn't exist. Israel's 
enemies. For example, have included those empire-building nations like Assyria and Babylon, the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, Those nations didn't care about Israel in particular. It wasn't a personal hatred, but they were just the next geographical nation to be conquered. But Israel also had personal enemies, of course, like the Philistines, like the Moabites and the Ammonites, other bordering nations as well. When Muhammad started Islam in the 6th century, he initially tried to evangelize, if we can use that term, uh, convert Jews to Islam. But when they refused to convert, he resorted to violence, and they've been enemies ever since, Muslims and Jews. Of course, the Nazi regime fostered hatred for Jews, and many around the world have had an irrational and personal hatred for Israel as a nation and the Jewish people in particular. So God's promise here is that one day all of that would be over. The day will come when no one will plot for the annihilation of Israel. The day will come when Israel will not be despised and attacked. One day they will have rest. That day, of course, has not yet come. But according to Daniel 7 and Revelation 20, it will come when Christ comes at his second coming to destroy his enemies and establish his kingdom in Jerusalem and set his throne in the city from which he will rule over the earth. On that day, Israel will finally experience rest from all of their enemies. You recall Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, which says, For a child will be born to us, a city will be given to us, excuse me, a son, not a city, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The first part of that prophecy, that a child would be born to us, a son would be given, that was fulfilled at Christ's first coming. But the rest of that prophecy will be fulfilled at his second coming. Israel will have rest. The third promise that the Lord makes to David here is that the Lord will make a dynasty for David. Look at the end of verse 11. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. This is kind of a plot twist in the account. Uh, David has a house, a large, beautiful house, and he wants to build a house for the Lord. But the Lord says, no, 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 David, I'm going to build a house for you. Now, the Lord's not going to build him another physical house. He doesn't need that. He's going to build him a figurative house or what we call a dynasty. Uh, We use the language of a house in this way when we refer to the the House of Windsor, for example, which is the dynasty of England's current monarchy. It's the royal line of successive kings and queens from a a particular bloodline. When you think about dynasties and how they rule over nations, the common feature of every dynasty is that regardless of how long it lasts— it always comes to an end. In fact, you can trace the history of China, for example, based on the 12 or so, depending on how you divide it, dynasties that have ruled that land for the last 4,000 years. But think about this here. David is Israel's second king. And the Lord promises that he will make a dynasty of David and for David. And as the rest of the promises indicate, this is not a dynasty that's going to last for a time. This is a dynasty that's going to last forever. After David and Solomon, the books of uh, 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles trace the, the kings of Judah to see what is the line of David, what is the dynasty uh, of David. Now, this is why the New Testament takes great pains to show that Jesus is in the line of David from both Mary and Joseph. Because any ruler in Israel who was not of the line of David, like King Herod, was an illegitimate king. Now, obviously, today there's no king in Israel. It's not a monarchy. But that's because, among other reasons, the true king of Israel is alive. 
and is sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven waiting for his return. And so because Jesus is alive, the dynasty is not dead. It continues in the person of Jesus Christ. And when he returns, Israel's monarchy will be reestablished. The Lord promises to make a house, a dynasty for David. And the fourth promise here is that David's son will sit on David's throne. Today, we can talk about the past dynasty, but from David's standpoint, he's only thinking about what's coming next. And so the Lord says, David, your son, as part of your dynasty, your son will sit on your throne. Look at verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you and he will, who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Uh, David already has several sons, perhaps many, but the implication here is that David's successor who will sit on his throne is not yet born. Uh, this promise implies that David will not be prematurely murdered or killed or die of sickness or nor will he be supplanted by a coup or some other uh, form of defeat. Instead, he, the Lord says, you will live a full and complete life, and then your son who will be born from you uh, will sit on your throne. As we uh, look at the record of Scripture, David had uh, 17 children whose names we know and more whose names we don't know. Of the ones that we know, he had 16 sons, and one daughter. But in 2 Samuel 5, verse 13, it says, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came there from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. So given his numerous wives and concubines, David likely had dozens of children. But only one would be the next king. Who would it be? Whom would the Lord choose to succeed David on his throne? It turns out that it's going to be Solomon, the son born to Bathsheba, whom David had sinned against by taking her for himself and killing her husband. Think about this. The one relationship that calls into question David's heart for God is the one through whom the Lord fulfills his promise that his son will sit on his throne. Again, there's no explanation for that other than the sheer grace of God. As with other promises, there was both a near fulfillment, Solomon, and the future fulfillment. And as the Old Testament moves forward, there's always this looking for who is this final son going to be that is the descendant of David who will bring to pass all of God's promises. The ultimate son of David turns out to be, it's no surprise by now, the Lord Jesus Christ, as announced by Gabriel to Mary in Luke chapter 1. And again, Jesus' second coming is what will fulfill the everlasting promise that is include, included here. Well, the fifth promise the Lord makes to David is that David's son will build a house for the Lord's name. David's house will, David's son will build a house for the Lord's name. Look at verse 13. He says, uh, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David's desire to build a house for the Lord will be completed by his son. It's no small thing that the Lord granted David's desire to build a house, a temple. For over 500 years, Israel has worshipped the Lord at the tabernacle as instructed by the law. And the Lord was rather particular about the tabernacle. You can read the blueprints that he uh, gave to them in Exodus chapter 25 to 40. It's one of those passages of scripture that when you're reading through, trying to get through in a year, you're like, okay, I think I can work through this more quickly. All the measurements and dynamics of the temple. So it's remarkable that the Lord would accept a departure from what he had written in the law of Moses. Well, before he died, David made preparations by collecting a lot of the materials that would be needed to build the temple. 
Uh, he communicated his plans to Solomon. It may be that David even uh, wrote out the, the blueprints and gave them to Solomon. Uh, he set the expectations for the people that this is what's going to happen uh, when Solomon becomes king. And then when Solomon became king, this became the primary focus of his uh, initial years of rule. They built the temple as a glorious dwelling for the Ark of the Covenant, where the sacrifices would be made and where the nation would come to worship the God of Israel. But there is another sense in which we can understand this promise that David's son will build a house for the Lord's name. In Acts chapter 13, or excuse me, verse seven, chapter 17, uh, Paul's sermon to Athens, he says this, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. God doesn't dwell in buildings. He doesn't need a house like you and I need a roof over our head. It's no accident that the New Testament refers to the church as the house of God. Listen to Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. So then you are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and you are of God's household, having been built. So he's talking about the building, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. So while David's immediate son built a house of stone for the Lord, fulfilling David's desire, David's ultimate son built a house of people for the Lord. And we are the ones who dwell, who are that house in whom the Lord dwells by his spirit. Well, the sixth promise is that the Lord would be the son, excuse me, the Lord would be the father of David's son. The Lord will be a father to David's son. Look at verse 14. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with a rod of men and the strokes of men. Verse 15, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. This speaks of the personal and intimate relationship that God would establish between himself and David's descendant. It would be a relationship of love and care, of nurturing and training, and yes, even discipline. Uh, God's relationship with David's son would not simply be creator to creation or deity to humanity. It would be personal. It would be warm. It would be familiar. And like a father-son relationship, it could be hindered by sin, but not ultimately broken. It's interesting that in the scripture, you will not find any passages that describe God's relationship to Solomon or any subsequent king as a father-son relationship. Nowhere is uh, God described as Solomon's father, nor is Solomon described as God's son. In fact, the recorded interaction between Solomon and God is very limited, far more lim limited than David's interaction with God. And so if the Lord had a more personal relationship with Solomon, it's, it's really silent in Scripture. The only clear sense in which Solomon is described or could be uh, explained as God's son, and as well as the subsequent kings, is in the fact that the Lord disciplined them. He allowed them to receive the due consequences of their rebellion against him. You notice here that the Lord makes a distinction between correction and rejection. He says, I will, in verse 14, I will correct him. But in verse 15, my loving kindness shall not depart from him, meaning I will not reject him as I rejected Saul. So he says, the Lord says to David that he will not ultimately reject David's descendants and bring an end to his house, to his dynasty. But he will discipline them as a father disciplines his sons, 
And that's exactly what we see in Israel's history, starting with Solomon. Solomon and all Israel's kings following him were unfaithful to the Lord in varying degrees, and they experienced the consequences of their rebellion. In some cases, those consequences included a sickness like leprosy with Uzziah or terminal sickness in the case of Hezekiah. In others, discipline came in the form of defeat in battle or even death uh, by their enemies. The ultimate discipline handed down to Israel's kings was the discipline of uh, being overrun by the Babylonians. The The city of Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed and the people were exiled. But even then, when the nation as a distinct nation was destroyed, we'll see next time in more detail that God's promise to not reject David's line was still holding fast. Unlike with Saul, God would not reject David's line and replace it with a new dynasty. So God disciplines David's sons, but the father-son language is not used in the Old Testament. It's it's really muted in the Old Testament, but it does appear. In fact, in in Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2 we see the clearest presentation of this relationship between God and David's ultimate son, the Messiah, when it prophetically quotes the Messiah as saying, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. No descendant of David fits that bill in the Old Testament. But there is a son of David who has a father-son relationship with God, right? Jesus repeatedly calls God his father. And on multiple occasions, God publicly declares Christ to be his son. And the New Testament constantly refers to Jesus as the son of God. In fact, in Acts 13, it says, God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. So this promise to David is fulfilled in Jesus, even the aspect of discipline. Now, Jesus was not punitively disciplined, Right? He, had, he had no sin that he needed to be disciplined for. But the New Testament describes Jesus as experiencing discipline from the Father in another sense. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 says of Christ, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who, who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So again, Jesus was not punitively disciplined. If I can say it this way, he was instructionally disciplined. Uh, He was trained. And by virtue of his testing, he learned experientially what it is to obey the Father, even in the face of extreme suffering. The experience that he had perfected him, not in the sense that there was a defect that needed to be corrected, but in the sense that his righteous character was now completely manifested in the fullness of human experience. So there were no holes in his training and development. He was disciplined in the form of training. Well, that leaves us with the final element of the Davidic covenant. The final promise the Lord makes to David is that his house, his kingdom, and his throne will be established forever. His house, his kingdom, and his throne will be established forever. Look at verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Notice the context of the environment in which David's house, his kingdom, and his throne will endure. The Lord does not say it will endure forever on the earth because the earth will one day pass away. Rather, it says, he says, it will endure before me, meaning in my presence. 
So this covenant, this promise to David is not simply valid as long as there is such a thing as a nation of Israel that is recognized on the earth, nor is it valid as long as there is such a thing as the earth on which a nation can dwell. Rather, it will endure. David's house, his kingdom, and his throne will endure as long as there is a God before whom one can exist. And that, my friends, is forever. As one looks at the history of Israel from this point of David's life moving forward, it would be reasonable to question how this and these other promises could be fulfilled through human kings. From Saul until the deportation of Judah to Babylon, there was never a king who was consistently faithful to the Lord, and that includes David. Think about this. The Lord made these promises even though he knew full well how David would sin grievously against him. Uh, The Lord made this promise knowing that David would steal Bathsheba for himself, knowing that David would kill Uriah, knowing that David would let his sons get away with rape and murder, knowing that David would pridefully conduct a, a census in Israel, And when you move on from David to Solomon and the rest of David's line, each king had serious failings, all of which the Lord knew would happen. So is that what God is promising? An endless series of kings who were morally corrupt and even the best of them only partially followed the Lord. This is what Israel had to look forward to forever? Praise God, that is not what God was promising. That David's throne would endure forever before the Lord hints at the reality that one day the throne of David would transcend the curse of sin and be a kingdom of justice and righteousness and glory. Now, how would that happen? The Lord doesn't tell David here, but we know that David understood at some point that one of his descendants would be far greater than himself, even God. It was David who prophetically wrote in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And again, speaking of his descendant one day, he wrote, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So David both calls his son Lord and declares that he will be a priest forever. No man would qualify under those conditions if they were only a man. He had to be a man Otherwise, he couldn't be a descendant of David. But he needed to be more than a man to completely fulfill God's promises. Well, we don't need to look for that king anymore. He's already come. Hebrews 1 ascribes the first part of Psalm 110 to the Lord Jesus Christ, where the Lord said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Hebrews 7 ascribes the second part of Psalm 110, that he is going to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 7 ascribes that to Jesus. So there is no question, Jesus is the son of David. And not just any son, like all the other sons, but rather the the son who will institute and establish his rule and reign forever before the Lord. My friends, the Davidic covenant is a unilateral, eternal covenant that the Lord made with David out of sheer grace. It's not just a covenant to David in particular. It's really the unfolding of how God would fulfill all of his promises to Phinehas, to Moses, to Abraham, to Noah, and to Adam and Eve. The son of David will one day crush the serpent's head and rule over the earth in righteousness. And his righteous reign will last forever. This is 
the son of David, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. This is who Jesus is. Let's pray. Our Lord, there is a sense in which uh, there's so much more that, that could be said. But our hearts are full of the consideration that Jesus was no mere baby boy. He was that, and that in, its, in and of itself is a glorious reality that the God of eternity would be born as a man. But more than that, he is the fulfillment of your promise to your servant, David, a man who himself was sinful, undeserving. And yet by your grace, he did have a heart for you. And so you made this promise, not as a, a payment for his heart for you, but as a reflection of your faithfulness to your people. Lord, there are many in this room. We all have different situations in life. There may be some in this room who maybe don't know anything about Jesus other than what they've heard today. There may be others who've been hearing this year after year for decades. I pray that your spirit would take the truth of your word that has been proclaimed today and plant it deep in our hearts and cause us to know the Lord Jesus Christ for who he really is. That we would worship him, that we would serve him, and that we would long for his return. Lord, if there's anyone here who is lost in their sin, who's been blind and hostile to you in their heart, would you redeem them and rescue them? Would you give them eyes to see ears to hear and a heart to understand. Would you cause them to see the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Jesus who came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for sinners? And would they put their faith and trust in him and experience this Christmas what it is to celebrate the Lord? Lord, may we all in our lives, in our hearts, draw near to you and worship you so that you would be glorified in all things. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.